six, five, four, three, two. Hello and welcome to Verge ESP, a podcast about art and science on The Verge. My name is Emily Yoshida. I am the entertainment editor at The Verge. I'm Liz Lapato. I am the science editor at The Verge. And uh, coming up later in the pod, I'm going to be talking with Nicholas Christenfeld. He's a social psychologist at uh, UC San Diego, and he has just done a study about spoilers, which is a, an issue that is very close to the hearts of, I know, many Verge readers. So uh, that should be good. And that's coming up uh, about halfway through the pod. You but, could say Emily just spoiled the podcast right yeah, now. Yeah, that's what's coming. Now you know it's coming. And uh, and I ruined everything for you. And you should you should whine about it. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, but first, uh, I, I feel like we have to start on in in the world of science because it's been such an insane week for um, your corner of things Liz what with a, a little tiny non-planet uh named Pluto <laughs> that we finally got to know a little bit a little yeah. bit better oh man so this was, last week was so exciting um for me at least i don't know i don't know how many folks from science twitter you follow but my feed was basically just nerds losing their minds like <laughs> pretty much all week um so uh, if if you weren't paying attention, though, and I don't blame you because there generally are a lot of things happening in the world, um, uh, about nine years ago, we launched this uh, automated probe called New Horizons, and it's got the same CPU as the original PlayStation, <laughs> just to give you a sense of uh, where the technology was during um, the initial planning. Wow. Because um, it was, you know, it was the, the highest tech, most durable, cheap thing at the time, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, on, I think Tuesday, I think it was last Tuesday, um, New Horizons, uh, flew by Pluto and then sent a a packet, a small packet of data back, um, telling us that it had done so successfully, which wasn't guaranteed. I mean, uh, if it had run into like a significant, uh, amount of space dust and been hit by a rock or something, um, that would have been it. Uh, but fortunately that didn't happen. Um, so, uh, around, uh, 8.53 PM Eastern, um, at a packed house in Johns Hopkins applied physics laboratory, everybody just went bananas. Um, <laughs> I was watching it on the, um, the webcast and our reporter Sean O'Kane was there and filed us a couple of stories out of there. And if you haven't checked them out, you really, really should. Um, but there are, there are a couple of things that are worth mentioning about this, mm-hmm. um, and I think uh, the first one that I want to mention um, has to do with sort of the rock star of the evening, um, a woman named Alice Bowman, who was the New Horizons mission operation manager um, and is, in fact, the first female mission operation manager or mom, if you will, <laughs> um, at Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Laboratory. Uh, um, wait, explain the mom thing for me. Is that something that she chose to refer to herself as? Well, that's missions operations manager abbreviation. Oh, <laughs> yeah, words. Um, uh-huh. uh, um, and then she was she in charge of it the entire time uh, from when it initially launched or... Uh, you know, I, I'm not totally sure, um, but I will say that this is the um, this is the biggest the team that has had the the biggest number of women on it. It's 25 percent women, um, so it's the the NASA mission with the highest number of female staffers, including scientists and engineers. 
Um, which, you know, I mean, 25% doesn't sound like a lot because it's still half of 50% and right. we're half of the population. But it's uh, it's better than you usually see in space. Yeah. So that was that was exciting um, for me anyway um, to, to, to sort of see that. Um, but Alice, I mean, people went bonkers when she was about to speak. People started chanting her name. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, she uh, she sort of likened the 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 mission to um, parenting. Right. Because uh, mm-hmm. you, you put your kid out on its own. His, his its own your child isn't it no i'm kidding you you but you put your kids out on their own you know your little and playstation that you send out into the that's right into, into the, the world and you just have to trust that they're going to be able to manage whatever challenges come their way and uh so that was that was what sort of new horizons was um you know and nine years is a long time they had um at, at the Johns Hopkins um, event, they had kids on stage who were born the year that the probe was sent, and wow. they got to ask questions. So that wow. was pretty cool. Um, um, what were, do you know what the the odds were that something would go wrong uh, and we wouldn't be able to have these photos or any of this data? I think it was it, they were relatively low. I think mm-hmm. um, as of uh, the sort of the pre flyby number that I was seeing was like one in ten thousand chances mm-hmm. that it wouldn't work um mm-hmm. which is is you know that's low but it's not impossible right um so it was it was also a little bit nerve-wracking because as you may remember over july 4th all of a sudden um new horizons went into safe mode something happened and the main computer flipped off um and you know nasa reestablished contact and everything was fine afterwards but that computer glitch really sort of made people a little bit less complacent about, you know, the mission. Um, so right now we're receiving a bunch of data uh, about Pluto. Some of this is those remarkable photos um, that have been everywhere for the last week. Um, those beautiful images of Pluto and its surface, um, the flyover video, uh, the moons, uh, some of these moons which we're seeing up close for the very first time. Um, How do you pronounce so- the one, the the most famous moon of Pluto? Oh, this is going to be controversial. Uh-huh. So, yeah, um, I've heard that this is a controversy, but I want to—I want your—I want your opinion on it. So I pronounce it Charon because Charon. that's the name of the um, the basically it's it's derived from the the mythology, the ferryman of the dead, the person who takes you over to Hades. Right, um, Hades being Pluto. the Greek name for Pluto. Um, but uh, people like to pronounce it Charon, um, and the. The argument for that is that the guy who discovered it uh, wanted to n- call it, I think, Charlene after his wife and dropped um, the lean and put an on on the end. So we're so it's a, a, a fight between Greek mythology and this guy's feelings. Yeah, basically. <laughs> um, it's It depends on what Oops. kind of sentimental you are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know... Um, it, it, it was it was really really great to get this all clear signal and then and start to get these images of Charon and Nix um, on the flyby and Hydra, uh, another one of the the moons. Some of these moons hadn't been discovered until like 2005 when the oh, Hubble wow. Space Telescope found them. So um, it's it's I mean it's really because it's so far away and so small, a very unknown part of our neighborhood. Yeah. Um, so this is this is something that promises to tell us a lot more. Like for instance. Um, uh, I'll just quickly run through a couple of things we found. Uh, so some of the up-close images um, 
show ground without impact craters, um, mm-hmm. which, you know, uh, the reason people got excited about this is that it suggests that there's some kind of geological activity because um, obviously if you're a planet, you get hit by stuff. Uh, uh-huh. That's just sort of how it works. And you think about all the craters on the moon um, and, you know, elsewhere, um, Mars, for example, um, there's sort of a record of stuff getting hit. Mm-hmm. But if you're seeing relatively clear ground, that means it's it's recent, um, that that whatever has been pushed to the surface hasn't had a chance to be hit yet. So there's something going on uh, in terms of um, geologic or seismic activity. Uh, mm-hmm. So that's pretty exciting, especially because um, I know one of the things that uh, people have been speculating about um, are, are what are called um, cryovolcanoes. <laughs> hmm. Whoa. Um, yeah. So it's uh, it's basically a, a volcano, like an ice volcano. Um, uh-huh. Sometimes uh, sometimes it's water, sometimes it's methane that it erupts, but not molten rock. Um, like frozen so, methane. Yeah. Ooh. <laughs> okay. So uh, so there might those might be those might be in play. Uh, we'll be finding out more over the next eighteen months because uh, our data connection to Pluto is. <clears throat> slow okay <laughs> i have a i have a couple questions what wait uh first uh what is pluto made of again this is the easy one what is pluto made of yeah or do we know elementally well that's part of what we're hoping to find out okay so uh, they don't know this yet at all they, it's not one of these things they can kind of deduce from yeah you can get a sense of like some of the things that are there but obviously being much closer gives you a, a better sense right. and a more direct observation so that's part of what's going on like for instance um uh, one of the big discoveries um, uh, were these sort of um, icy frozen planes with what appear to be wind streaks on the surface. Hmm, yeah. Um, and so it suggests that um, there was a process where ice was turning into gas um, on the surface of Pluto. So we know that there's there's probably water there, hmm. um, which is exciting. Yeah. Um, and And, you know, until... Pretty much until we got these these images, it was thought that things like Pluto that were that icy were couldn't have you know geological activity uh, because they they don't have a large source of gravity nearby to to create these sort of surface features. So now we have to figure out why we're seeing what we're seeing. So that's pretty cool. Hmm. Um, um, wait, can I ask my other question? Yes, please. Okay. Um, so all these you know the, the the main photo that's been going around of, of Pluto to me it seems very bright. Knowing how far away Pluto is from the sun, like I imagine the sun from Pluto must not look like that much, I would imagine. <laughs> I would imagine not also. Um, so is that, are those photos um, altered in some way or um, why does it look so like moon-like? That's a good question. Um, so some of it, has, I think, has to do with the sensitivity of the cameras that are being used. Mm-hmm. Um, they're They're specifically set to catch up, catch much more light than the cameras you or I use where in, in brightly used lit places. Mm-hmm. So I think that's part of it. But some of these images, um, not the sort of the, the famous one that, that we've been seeing everywhere where Pluto is just, you know, this beautiful lit body against the, the black of space, um, are false color images, um, mm. which help scientists to figure out what's going on with the geographic features. And so you, you get these sort of overlays of color, um, based on um uh material composition i think uh so you see, like for instance that heart-shaped plane um uh-huh. that you see on pluto um 
if you look in the false color, you realize that the that one side of the plane is one color and the other side is another. So those are actually two sort of distinct geologic regions. Oh, huh. I'm actually looking at this right now. Yeah, it's much more um, much more colorful. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I, it was interesting because you look at it and you're like, oh, it's Tatooine uh, from Star Wars. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but yeah, um, I was kind of, yeah, I was wondering over the, the camera and I was also like, when did you, what year did you say that got sent up again? Nine uh, years ago? Nine years ago. No. So that would be what, 2006? Right. I guess they had good cameras. And I was thinking for a while that it had been sent up a lot longer ago. And I was like, wow, they, you know, it was like the thing we were talking about when we were talking about the space telescope. Like you get right. this technology up there that's actually pretty old by the time it's up there. Yeah. Um, which is very interesting. I mean, anything that has to do with these lags of time and when you're dealing with space and getting across space are very, very interesting to me from just like a narrative level. Narrative level. Yeah, um, there's something kind of epic about it. Yeah, right? like yeah. It's not only is it super difficult and time consuming, but, you know, you're using super old technology that maybe is a little bit rickety uh, by the standards of what we expect in our day to day lives. Yeah. And somehow it still works. Yeah. Wow. So, yeah, this was a uh, when is so what, after this, it just leaves our solar system and we're not going to get anything else back from it. Or is there a, are we just going to see how long we can get stuff back from it? Well, so that's not clear. Um, New Horizons has enough fuel to last into the 2030s. Uh, okay. But this is a big but there has to be a mission extension in order to keep the staff um, with it. OK, so um no one knows what the extended mission goal is yet or if, you know, there's um, there's going to be more. But um, basically, uh, right now, New Horizons is headed out past, like, out of our solar system in the way that the Voyager crafts are. Um, and so, you know, potentially if the mission were to be extended, we could learn a lot more about the weird small rocky bodies that are at the very edges of our neighborhood. Right. Um, so there's there's still potentially more to discover if there's funding and an interest for it, and it's not clear that there is. But I mean, everybody was so happy about Pluto this week. Shouldn't there just be a popular vote, <laughs> right? You know, I would hope so. Um, I, I think that that's one of the things that NASA has historically struggled with because people are always really thrilled whenever NASA does something. Like I was in Times Square for the um, the Mars landing, the Seven Minutes of Terror, and. It was packed and everybody was there for the party, you know, because they were um, they were broadcasting on the big video uh -huh. uh, screen there, uh, the uh, the live feed from NASA. Um, and people had like tinfoil hats. They yeah. had like dressed up, you know, I mean, like there is definitely an appetite for this kind of yeah. this this kind of work um, and and. Uh, human ingenuity, you know, people people definitely have a sense of wonder. Um but I also think that it's something of a hard sell um, when you think about the fact that NASA is funded by the government and everybody's got a different priority when it comes to getting their own pork belly, pork belly whatever, through. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. So, you know, uh, I would hope that, that the mission would get extended, but it, I don't know that there's the political support for that. Hmm. Well, um, I hope th I hope so, because, you know, I mean, I, I know there's not leaning there's probably not any more big bodies to investigate, but it'd still be just cool to see 
things like I'm imagining us to look back at our solar system from that perspective. And I feel like that would be an interesting it's like a like an extra far away version of the overview effect or something like that. Yeah. Well, and also, I mean, what's cool about the Voyager crafts is that they they have, I think, at this point left our solar system. And so we're starting to get some information on what the hell is going on beyond us. Yeah. Um, so that, that could be something that would be very cool if possible. Um, but you know, it's hard to say. I mean, New Horizons is also moving a little bit more, more slowly than the Voyager crafts because they did some like, uh, interesting loop-de-loops, um, in order to, uh, use gravity to accelerate. Hmm. Uh, which New Horizons did not. So it's not moving as quickly as they are. Um, but, uh, nonetheless, it's still... Uh, still very cool and there's still a lot we can learn from it and there's going to be um, more images more data coming back for the next 18 months or so because the connection is so slow that like um, two things happened first um, the probe can't both do its scientific mission and uh, communicate with earth at the same time so for a while it just basically shut everything down to get as much data as it could from Pluto that's why we were waiting for the ping on the flyby uh-huh. Um but then second of all, um, the connection obviously is very, very slow. Um, I think it's X-ray wavelengths that they're using to communicate. Oh, okay. Um, so it's like slower than a dial-up modem. Right. <laughs> so what's the lag there? How does it, how long does it take to send something uh, back? It's right, it's right around 12 hours, maybe okay. a little bit longer. Um, so the actual flyby happened in the morning on Tuesday. Right, right. And we didn't find out about it until the evening. Gotcha. Um, well, that's, um, that's really amazing news. It's like a very, it's a very cool story. Like seems like a once in a lifetime type thing to get to, to be around to see something like that for the first time. Um, oh, yeah. um, unlike a movie that comes out this Friday that oh. I feel like, well, maybe that, maybe actually, maybe, maybe Pixels is the Pluto of movies like maybe it's the thing where we finally decide that it's not a movie anymore because it's so (laughs) bad Um, what do you mean (laughs) um there's a movie coming out this friday called pixels um it was just recently brought to my attention that it was based on a short an animated short or like a half filmed half effects short and now it is a um adam sandler starring and like peter dinklage is in it too um action adventure thing uh put out by Sony Pictures and it looks like a marketing research group saw the success of the Lego movie and I guess the success of Wreck-It Ralph although that wasn't like a major success for Disney and we're like yeah kids love retro video games and blocky objects um, let's make an Adam Sandler movie about it. And so that's what they did. Um, I, 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 I'm probably going to get some hate for this. Um, uh-huh. but I would be perfectly happy if Adam Sandler never made another movie. Oh, I think you're in, you're in the, well, you know, that might be a silent majority type thing. I'm not sure. Um, I feel like recently there have been, there's been less, uh, financial support for his his work. Good, because it's terrible. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, I liked The Wedding Singer a lot, and I liked um, 
some of his earlier stuff, too. Right. Um, well, I mean, Wedding Singer at this point counts as early Adam Sandler. I mean, I guess and that's right. a very charming movie. I like that movie. Um, I did, too. I saw it in the theaters, actually. Uh, so did I. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, but when, when you see that and you remember people thinking, oh, it's sort of like a... It's sweet or whatever, but it's kind of a dumb comedy. And you, we had no idea how bad it could get. Yeah, we had no idea how dumb his dumb comedies could yeah. possibly be, I think. Um, I mean, I have very little information as to what he actually does in this movie. Uh, the the premise of it, though, and this was brought up to me by... This will tie into our interview uh, uh, because I'm about to spoil, I guess, plot points from Pixels. And if you want to complain... To the, about me to this, um, please first listen to our interview and then really think about how much it matters to you um, what happens in Pixels. Just think about <laughs> it really, really hard. Um, so apparently it's that uh, Adam Sandler and his friend used to be championship video game players and they send a video of them playing at this gaming tournament gets sent out into space and then aliens find it and think that it's like a threat, like a battle threat that we have like these monsters and these kids who can work machines, I guess, or something, and then attack our planet in the shape of Pac-Man and Centipede and stuff like that. Um, which immediately made me think, oh, that's the plot of Contact, <laughs> right? <laughs> Um, because, I mean, in that, of course, it's, like, Hitler addressing people at the first, at the Berlin Olympics, but that's, like, the first signal that was strong enough to leave the orbit of our planet, uh, and then that's what the aliens find, spoiler for, spoiler for contact, um, although that happens very early on in the film, but, um, I don't know, this, this film... This film is really depressing to me that it even exists. I also kind of want to see it just out of I want to see how how bad it is. Like I just mm-hmm. I really am curious about the lows of it. Um and it just it, I mean I'm, I I was watching the short without the sound on, so maybe I didn't get the full experience, but I'm and it kind of reminded me of um the short that um Neil Blomkamp made uh that became um District 9. Which was called Alive in Joburg. Um, and it was sort oh, of a. I don't think I've ever seen that short. I didn't realize District 9 was based on a short. Oh, yeah. It's super cool. Like, I remember seeing that. It was. I can't remember if I saw it on YouTube. I remember I saw it like the first year YouTube existed, though. Um, wow. <laughs> but. Uh, YouTube OG. Yeah. Uh, and it was really cool. It's like, you know, it's like it, that serves more as a proof of concept of like being able to. Do this sort of it's it's framed more as a documentary in the short um, where it's like this documentary about this fantastical thing involving aliens that in what otherwise is real Johannesburg. Um, but I mean, <laughs> I was watching this pixels thing. It's like, oh, this is like a this is a demo reel for an effect you can use in a target ad or something like there's not a narrative going on here. There's not um, stakes. It's like it's like gra- a graphic design shape takes over manhattan that's what that's like whoever saw that and thought yes let's make this into an alien story starring adam sandler like it's just it that is that is the state of hollywood right now like that gets greenlit as a movie and so many other things do not (laughs) so you know what's crazy to me i remember seeing this short a couple years ago 
Um, and I'm I'm trying to remember the name of the music it was set to. It was something trumpets. Um, not the Jason Derulo, but something else. Oh, <laughs> uh, but it was it was it felt like a really good music video, right? Yeah, which I it would was also fine be with. a great music video. Yeah, um, but I can't imagine taking the conceit that really worked very well for four minutes and turning it into forty minutes, much less a full feature length movie, right? Um, which I guess is why you bring in Adam Sandler to fill up space i i you know i don't know yeah. it's just it's it's such a peculiar thing to me i mean like there there wasn't really any narrative to it there wasn't anything other than here is a very cool thing that's happening right now right yeah and i think there's there's like a version of this happening across different uh time-based narrative mediums like i feel like a lot of things that should be just movies end up being turned into TV shows. Um, I feel like a lot of people might disagree with me on this because I feel like a lot of times people believe that, uh, or rather, uh, a lot of times things get pitched as TV shows and then get turned into movies or like they're written as a pilot, but they're written as 90 minutes so that they can be a TV movie just in case. Okay, it came back to me. I'm very proud of this, so I have to. I just have to share this okay. with you. Um, it's a it's a song called "L.A. Trumpets" by a group called the Naive New Beaters. Okay, that was what I saw it um, synced up to. Okay, it was a really cool music video. I don't know if it was even meant to be a music video for that music. If somebody just did it on YouTube, yeah. and that was what it was. But that was how I first experienced it. Yeah, and I mean, I don't know if the the, the video clip I saw was like the main one or not. Um, but it had something just shy of 2 million views on it, which isn't that much for, like, a viral video sensation, you know? It's actually not not, not at all anything. Um, so I'm kind of, I don't know. I'm just really, I, I mean, the, the the idea of a graphic conceit being able to be a full-length movie, the idea of of anything that just because it's popular as a YouTube video, it should we should get more of it in a longer format. It's just really bizarre to me. Well, it's like we didn't learn the lesson of Saturday Night Live to bring it back to Adam Sandler, right? Like some right. of those sketches are perfect for five or ten minutes, but you try to stretch them into a feature-length movie and it just does not work out. Yeah. I mean, like sometimes it does. Like the Blues Brothers movies I love and hold very dear to my heart. But yeah. like, or you Wayne's know... World. Uh, yeah, or like coneheads, like yeah. those things all worked. Um, but then there are also all of these like dreadful um, adaptations that I have mostly forgotten about. Yeah, um, I mean, yeah, it's it's sort of a, I don't know. It's 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 kind of like a, a shortcut in a way. No matter what, like no matter what the situation is, it's just like right. oh well, the the main the main issue of coming up with something completely new has been taken up care of us care of for right. us. So like, do you, do you really want to see the MacGruber film? I don't care. Do you, <laughs> you know, yeah, like, I want like five minutes of MacGruber, three minutes of MacGruber. Actually, most SNL sketches, even most SNL sketches are way too long. Most SNL <laughs> sketches should be about two minutes long and they are six or eight minutes long. So I don't know. Every, what I'm saying is across the board, just like keep it, keep it short and sweet no matter yeah, what I'm, whether I'm you're a, a marvel movie or an snl sketch just get out of there as fast as possible <laughs> there's this great line by anthony lane um and i'm i'm 
uh, I'm about to uh, I'm about to do a spoiler. So <laughs> okay, we're keeping on um, we're keeping on theme today. Yeah, I, I actually um, I, I almost uh, <laughs> um, I almost just want to do a rapid fire spoiler round, but he he it's like the first line of the review. And it's something like, um, I, I'm paraphrasing here because I don't have it in front of me, but, um, you know, this movie is far too long in so-and-so's Anna Karenina. Anna Karenina's in love, out of love, and under the train in 90 minutes. <laughs> See? Which, accurate. That, that is the movie. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, wait, was it the actual Anna Karenina? Um, wait, the actual Anna Karenina adaptation? With uh, yeah, it was it? one of the early ones, I think. Oh, okay. Um well, yeah. I mean, yeah. Let's just keep spoiling major um, works of fiction. I'm fine with that. So um, in just a second here, I'm going to be joined by Nicholas Christenfeld. Um, he and along with his colleague, Jonathan Levitt, have just published a study um, at the UC San Diego um, called S- Story Spoilers Don't Spoil Stories, which is kind of a tongue twister. Um, and in it, he has a pretty interesting conclusion to be drawn about um, people's enjoyment of stories, uh, specifically stories where there's an ending to be spoiled, uh, like mysteries and and kind of sudden twist stories. So um, I got on the phone with him and um, that will be our conversation right after the break. I am joined now by Nicholas Christenfeld. He's a professor professor of social psychology at UC San Diego, and he has just published a study entitled Story Spoilers Don't Spoil Stories, um, along with Jonathan Levitt. Um, thanks for joining me today, Nicholas. Okay. Um, so... I want to talk about I want to talk about the results of it, but first I just want you to kind of uh, lay out how you did the study, what was the setup, um, and what kind of questions you were asking the subjects. So we're interested in the role of suspense in fiction, and it came from bigger questions we had about why it is that people spend so much time with completely made up stories that you'd think if your goal was to learn about the world, you would never read fiction, right? Because then you learn things that people just made up about the world or made up even about other worlds. And one thought about fiction is that what it's very good at is suspense. That is, you don't know how it's going to end, where if you read a story about World War II, you kind of know who's to win in the end. And so we're interested, is this suspense the critical part of fiction? And you can tell whether that's true by taking away the suspense, by spoiling it. Uh, and the very term spoiler suggests a, an answer to that question, that when you spoil a movie by saying Rosebud is the sled, just to spoil a classic movie, you ruin it. And, and so this is an empirical question. Do you, in fact, spoil things by giving away the ending? And what we did was have people read a number of short stories, uh, sometimes spoiled and sometimes not, and see which ones they liked more. So you had a range of stories, I think, so you, you categorized them in different ways that I thought were interesting, like uh, stories with this ironic twist in them, an ironic twist and something that's more of like a literary story and mysteries. Um, and what was the thinking behind getting that, that specific range of stories? Well, we thought spoilers might play different sorts of roles in those stories. So mysteries are, are at least conceivably constructed entirely about discovering the ending. Right. That is, you want to know who did it, 
and that's only revealed in the final moments of the story, or in our case, right at the beginning. And then these ironic twists are a similar sort of thing, but set up slightly different. And in these ironic twist stories, you don't even realize there's a mystery hidden at the end. And, and so things like Shirley Jackson's The Lottery is an example of that, or, or the movie The Usual Suspects is similar to that. Or at the end, you don't realize you didn't know something critical, and it changes your entire view of what you've just read. And so we thought spoilers might, in fact, spoil both kinds of those stories. And then the, this third class, which is a slightly vaguer one, is sort of literary fiction, where it's not just discovering who did it. It's sort of these personal growth stories or little insights into some aspect of human nature. We thought maybe in that case, spoilers would be less important, that, it, that there is nothing at the end that, that would go back and change everything that, that you've read up till then. Right. And it's interesting for me because I think probably most of the stuff that I personally end up writing about that people complain about spoilers for, I think would fall under the literary category. And I think people get very people. The idea of what a spoiler is isn't so much to do with the plot anymore. It's just like the overall quality of this of the story, not not wanting to be spoiled, which I think is it's almost a different issue entirely. But it's all falls under the the realm of of spoilers. Um and so, in certain case, people have very strong opinions about spoilers in yeah. all these categories. And yeah. There's a number of people who write reviews of movies and television shows, and it's so on a, a, the bane of their existence is furious responses from people anytime they spoil even the t- trivialist detail from the story. Totally. So so I, I, now I think it would be a good time then to talk about the results, which I think are very interesting, or what you found. Yeah, the results were unambiguous, that in all three cases, all three kinds of stories, and we did multiple stories in each category, these spoilers actually make people enjoy the story more. So for half the subjects, they read the story having been given away sort of inadvertently or apparently inadvertently the plot at the beginning. You know, now you read the story about the lottery where the... I won't spoil this one. And so, <laughs> and so people just know the ending, but... But it hasn't been termed a spoiler, so they don't think, oh, that's ruined for me. They just now read the story knowing what's going to happen. Or they just read it exactly the way most people do without knowing the ending. And then at the end, how much did you like that story? How good was that story? And people actually prefer having read the stories when they know the ending. This is true for mystery stories. It's true for these literary stories. It's true for these ironic twist stories. But the spoilers, in in fact, are, as we suggested earlier, enhancers. So it's something, I mean, you kind of describe it as being, a, uh, it's an enhancer in that you're able to then pay attention to other aspects of it. You're able to appreciate the literary qualities of the story or, you know, more subtle details that aren't all wrapped up in what's going to happen next. Exactly. This is one of those findings where when we first found it, we thought it was extraordinary and unlikely and amazing. And then the more we thought about it, we thought it was almost inevitable. Right. And there are two sorts of, of reasons. One, as you suggest, is, is as you read these stories, the plot isn't really the point of it. That is, you don't, you know, if you just wanted to know who did it, you could just flip to the last page and think, oh, it was the butler. Right. And you saved yourself an hour of reading. And, and so clearly discovering who did it, it is a trivial detail. And what you want is the unfolding of the, of the story, the, the artistry of it, the beauty of it. Mm-hmm. I actually talked to a French filmmaker here, a longtime collaborator, Jean-Luc Godard, uh, who had just contempt for plots, as if you've seen any French New Wave films, yeah. you recognize. Uh, and he said, you know, the plot is like a coat hanger displaying a garment that is necessary, otherwise the garment's just a crumpled heap on the floor. 
but you don't say like, oh my God, the coat hanger is so amazing. I'm so glad to see the coat hanger. It's just an excuse for doing art. You know, you don't need a plot when you look at, at a great painting or you don't need a plot for a great piece of music. You just want to see the artistry unfold and a, and a plot is the structure that lets you do that. So that's one of the arguments. The other argument, which uh, made the results seem almost obvious, is if you think about how people actually enjoy great books and, and uh, movies and even television shows, huge numbers of times, the, it's obviously spoiled for them. That is, when you go and see Hamlet, you don't think, like, don't, don't tell me if he's going to die, or Romeo and Juliet, like, oh, are they going to get together happily? Obviously, you know the answer to that, and it doesn't in any way diminish your pleasure watching it. In fact, if you think of Shakespeare's plays, mostly the title even tells you whether it's going to end happily or not. It's called, for example, All's Well That Ends Well. You don't go into it thinking like, oh, God, I don't know if this is going to end well. Or <laughs> oh, wait, no, it is. Right? Yeah. I mean, uh, I, I think about some of my favorite movies. I mean, and I was, I was actually, I wonder if you have any insight into this, because I was actually talking with someone recently about the, uh, the habit of watching movies over and over again, how I have some movies that I love that I've seen, you know, probably over 20 times, because they're just like comfort food to me. And I, I know exactly what's going to happen. And I like running through it over and over again. My friend was saying that this was more, it seemed to him to be more of a girl thing than a guy thing. Which I thought was interesting because I don't know. My, my I think of growing up and just watching so many things over and over again, and really just loving having been spoiled, loving knowing exactly what was, what was going to happen, and running it over and over and again. Yeah, we actually didn't look at gender differences in that, but it certainly, as you point out, the second time you watch a movie, it's spoiled, and people watch suspense movies and these ironic twist movies again, often with increased pleasure. So the second time you watch The Usual Suspects you, in fact, I think, have a, a richer experience because you can see the unfolding narrative about Kaiser Soze in it, and you can understand what the filmmaker is doing with, with, with greater knowledge than the first time. And so people don't just say, like, okay, I've done that, move on. They, they can now go back. In the same way, you can watch Hamlet knowing the ending. You can watch The Usual, usual Suspects with pleasure knowing the ending, and often, as, as we found, greater pleasure. So... It seems to me there are probably things that could get ruined, but then that's just sort of a sign of a bad story, right? If that's yeah. if that's the entire quality of it, if that's where you get all the enjoyment from it is the plot, then, you know, something's missing. Yeah, so there are certainly categories. And we tried to find stories so bad that, that spoilers would ruin them. It's actually hard to do. <laughs> um, we did find a few categories of things. So jokes, we found, are in fact spoiled if you tell people at punchline first. Um, so that little bit of advice, keep the punchline until the end, turns out to be accurate. Um, but again, jokes generally aren't appreciated for their literary value. So I have to see even this, there's an exception. There's the whole movie made uh, where the premise of the movie is that every comedian tells the, this joke with the same punchline. Uh, aristocrats. And the, the punchline for every comedian doing a version of this joke is the same. It is the aristocrats. There's the punchline. Uh, and the pleasure of it and why these comedians love each other's versions of the joke so much is exactly to see the artistry building up to exactly what they know is going to happen. Uh, in, in some ways, if you think about spoilage, something like Oedipus Rex is spoiled at multiple levels. Right? So that you know what exactly what Oedipus is going to do with his mother and his father. And in fact, he knows what he's going to do. Right? So it's spoiled even for the characters 
And yet watching it, you can still feel the tension and the drama. You don't just think like, oh, yeah, yeah, come on, do it with mom, kill dad. <laughs> right? You think, don't, don't, right? Turn away. This is, this is your fate, but, but you can rail against it. Uh, and it's exactly the kind of suspension of disbelief that, that all fiction entails anyway. Right? People are sad at the end of Romeo and Juliet, but it's made up, right? There's, there is no Romeo who's dead, right? Uh, you didn't know him. He doesn't exist. There's no reason to be sad. But you can enter into the narrative and you can feel the anguish, even knowing that it's inevitable that, that they'll have the poison and the dagger and so on. And that doesn't matter. That is the fact that Romeo and Juliet is spoiled is completely immaterial because to some extent it's spoiled because they don't even exist. And that doesn't matter. So... Uh, I think I think something that gets the most kind of spoiler complaints from fans and uh, from readers tends to be stuff that exists in that kind of in like a fandom world. So, you know, Marvel movies, um, things that people tend to geek out about. Uh, Mm -hmm. Those those are like the and it's not even. Yeah, it's like I was saying earlier. It's not really the plot necessarily, because sometimes you kind of know a lot about what's going to happen in the plot, especially if it's been in a comic book before. But it's, you know, details like what color somebody's costume is or something like that, you know, that kind of thing becomes something that people feel needs to be a part of the experience of watching it from the beginning to the end. Um, yes, I think in, in some of those, those domains, part of the, the aspect of spoiling is that some people have privileged knowledge that not everyone has. Uh, and so there's a gloating aspect to spoiling. So I've already seen this. And now I can use that power. I know what color the wedding was in Game of Thrones and so on. And so one doesn't want to be in the, the sort of weaker, subservient position of not knowing stuff about something you care about. Uh, that's very different from your experience of watching the movie. You don't want your friends to gloat over you. So what what do you, what's next for this study? Like, how are you going to get the word out? Because I think a lot of a lot of culture writers would really appreciate this being. Uh, made semi-public, or at least have something we can point to where we're like, that, this is why you should not complain. <laughs> there have been two responses to this finding. One response from about 10% of the population is, oh, I knew this all the time, and in fact, when I read books, I flip to the last page to discover who's alive and who's married, and so on. And some, I know some people who won't go to movies without first discovering the plot of them. I even have one colleague who doesn't like watching sports events without knowing who won. <laughs> Which, again, it seems crazy at first, but, but his point is, right, you don't watch a sports event just to discover who wins, because if that were your interest, you would just save three hours and Google it. Right? Ten seconds, you'd know, oh, the Giants won. They're done. Three hours of my life back. Uh, so clearly that's not why you really watch sports events. Uh, so about 10% of people actually prefer spoilers, and they loved our research because now all of their friends who mock them, they can say, no, no, I'm right, you're wrong. Uh, the other 90% of people simply don't believe it. Uh, <laughs> say, oh, well, that's all, all very well and good, but I know that spoilers ruin things. And, and it's a fascinating response for a start, um, that one's intuitions trump empirical data. <laughs> yeah, and that's a deeper issue. But I think what's especially salient about it is one is almost never in the position of knowing whether or not spoilers spoil things in one's own life. That's when I see a movie, I either see it knowing the end or I see it not knowing the end. And I don't know what my experience would have been the other way. Right. Yeah. You know, so I go and see Hamlet and I love it. And I knew the end. And I don't think like, wow, spoilers didn't ruin that. I just think, well, Hamlet's a great play. 
you know, and then something else, I don't know, Pee-wee's Big Adventure, I know the end, and I go and see that, and I think, eh, it wasn't so great, and I think, well, it wasn't so great because it was spoiled, but I really have no idea that it that this can't be done intuitively, because you simply don't have the data. Yeah. I mean, it seems like it's really based around this idea of discovery that I think people want, which makes me also feel like the first time you read a book or watch a movie is almost a completely different uh, you know, at least psychological experience from watching it or reading it the second time. Um, I mean, just, you know, based on everything we've been talking about. But I think some people want to have that first experience of being in the dark. And then, especially with things that they know they will probably watch again, like, you know, a Star Wars movie or something like that. Um, yeah. And I think that that's a, a subtle point, which is it's possible that spoilers actually enhance your first experience with it. But maybe they could actually diminish your second experience. That if you watch something unspoiled, you get a not as good experience of novelty. And then your second watching, you can have the the optimal experience of knowledge. If something's spoiled already, you get that optimal experience of knowledge, but then you never get the novelty part. You can imagine like a, a relationship. You can say like, oh, I much prefer this, you know, second year of dating someone where you're comfortable with each other and you know and you trust each other. But you can still wish to have had that initial anxious, uh, you know, passionate stage. Um, and to some extent, if you imagine just jumping right to the intimacy and the trust and the closeness, uh, your first month with a person might be better, but you still never would have had that, that initial uncertainty. That's a really interesting comparison, but it, it makes a ton of sense. Yeah, it's yeah, it's a it's a trust thing completely. Like the second time you watch a movie, it's because you trust the movie. That's why it's comforting. Um, yeah, yeah. My colleague who likes to spoil sports events finds he doesn't like the anxiety of not knowing that you know either his team's going to win or lose, but he just wants not to have to worry about it. <laughs> okay, they lose. Let's see how that happened. Or they won. Good. Now I can see can see that winning. Well, that is an interesting interesting experience. I mean, I remember kind of having that experience during the, I think it was the Sochi Olympics. Is that right? Because it was on such a delay when they actually ended up putting it on TV in the States that a lot of times you knew exactly who was going to win. And so, yeah, you you were more focused on how that how that victory was built from knowing exactly how it was going to get going to end. You could then analyze the steps to that ending rather than be in suspense. Um, right. And if you think about sports as being like ballet, right. That no one thinks, Oh, a ballet is ruined by knowing, you know, whether the swan dies or not, or often even when you go to the opera, you will have in your program, the entire plot so that you don't have to worry about those trivial details. And you can imagine, you know, a great sports contest is like a great movie or a great short story is like a ballet rather than, you know, like a riddle. So what do you think then about the idea of being spoiled, not by details of what happens or how something that happens at the end or even the qualities within it, but somebody just saying something is amazing, the best thing ever, or the worst thing ever, like building an expectation of quality. Is that something yeah, that you look at at all? I, we haven't done research on that, but but it would be an interesting one. It's sort of hyping things. Yeah. Or saying, like, it's worth seeing, but it's not great. And then you go and see it and say, oh, it's amazing com- compared to your expectation. Yeah. No, that's the thing that I'm actually more nervous about 
as a writer, even just with my friends, you know, if I see something that I really, really love and I have just, you know, I, all I want to do is just heap this effusive praise on it. And then I kind of have second thoughts when they actually go to see it. Like, oh, maybe don't pay attention to anything that I said. Just like experience it for yourself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's uh, it's tough. Yeah, I think, you know, everybody wants to have that that sense of discovery, even if it's not maybe the most optimal way to do things and it's hard to dissuade people from that but right i mean these things make the the reviewing business especially hard yeah what what is it you want to share about something so that other people can experience it as you did yeah and and i think a lot of the times the comment is something like um you know you can just tell us whether it's good or not but don't tell us why (laughs) <laughs> which sort of defeats the defeats the whole purpose of writing like that's a that's a one paragraph uh or even less a one sentence review then if you don't if you can't support your opinion of the the story then uh then you don't really have that much to work with as a writer um, right and if you imagine something like art criticism no one would be even remotely interested in art criticism that just said you know this is a great painting go and right. see it <laughs> right that, sort of its greatness is irrelevant what you want is is some analysis and understanding of it. Yeah. Uh, it does suggest maybe this sort of criticism ought to be read after seeing the movie. Yeah, there's there's kind of two two reasons you would read review. One, to figure out if you're going to go see it in the first place, and then afterwards to just kind of clarify or, or put some kind of uh, prism or something onto your kind of initial feelings about um, about whatever you saw. Exactly. I mean, most of the reviews I read are after seeing yeah. Yeah, same. And yeah, and it's not a spoiler thing for me. It's more that I don't want my opinion to be affected. Yeah. Right. And one can understand the other person's analysis of it if one now shares the experience of yeah. it. Yeah. Um, but thank you so much for joining me today, Nicholas. Um, it was really, really interesting. It was great talking to you. My pleasure. All right. Have a good one. All right. Well, that's our show. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in two weeks. Uh, as you may know, this show happens every other Wednesday. And if you haven't already, make sure you subscribe on iTunes or any other podcast app you use um, or on SoundCloud. And you can give us a review or rating. Um, in fact, you should give us a review or rating on iTunes. We're super thirsty yeah. for that. Just give us all the stars, all the gold stars. Yeah, I would like several gold stars. You know, um, I, 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 I almost want to do a lightning round of spoilers, can we? <laughs> at the very end at the very end what's your favorite spoiler what's my favorite spoiler uh the horse is full of soldiers and they come out in the middle of the night and burn down troy <laughs> if you didn't know that the horse wasn't just like a regular horse you'd be like wow that's a that's a crazy story um uh my favorite is the one that i just did for our producer uh john lago marcino who i whose name i probably just butchered um because oh, that's right. <laughs> Poor John. <laughs> it is something that I myself got spoiled on before I saw it, um, which is the ending of Twin Peaks. Not necessarily the ending, I will say. Yeah, but, this occurs midway through season two. But an answer to the perennial question, who killed Laura Palmer, um, that got spoiled for me before I saw how it panned out. Um, so who killed Laura Palmer? Well, that's it. See you in two weeks. Yep, we've ruined all the fun. (laughs) Bye.